In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful, my Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. This weekend, the Church celebrates what we call Laetare Sunday, and that title, Laetare Sunday, comes from the entrance antiphon of the Mass. Laetare Jerusalem et conventum facite, omnis qui diligitis eam. Rejoice, Jerusalem, be glad for her, you who love her. Rejoice with her, you who mourn for her. And it's an important theme, the theme of joy, precisely in Lent, that we're looking forward to the joy of Easter. And spiritually, our Lenten acts of penance, our Lenten way, path of contrition, is something joyful because it leads to God's forgiveness. Lord Jesus, unless I admit that I need your help, unless I admit that I am a sinner, I don't experience the joy of your mercy. And in a way, this Lenten season is a season of one big act of contrition. All of Lent we can think of as one long act of contrition, an act in which we admit our guilt and at the same time, We ask God for his mercy. And the gospel of the Sunday's Mass helps us with that. We see the act of contrition of the prodigal son and the great joy it brought him to go to his father with contrition and receive his father's unexpected, bountiful mercy. The prodigal son, as we know, leaves his father asks for his inheritance, leaves his father to live a life of dissolution, of vice. And then he comes to a a very desperate situation in his life. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck in that country, and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. He found himself in dire need. This is a desperate situation. This is literally a life or death situation. He's so hungry that he's envious of the food that the swine are being fed. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? But here am I, dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father, and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. And so in this desperate situation, facing starvation and death, the prodigal son thinks of his father. And what does he do? He formulates an act of sorrow, an act of contrition. I don't deserve to be called your son. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. 
And this is what we do in Lent, and this is what we do in our acts of contrition, and this is what we do, perhaps above all, in our confessions. We go to God in a desperate situation because sin is spiritual death. Sin is a great spiritual disease. We go to God and we admit that we're bad. We admit that we're evil, that we've sinned. I've sinned against heaven and against you. And then we put ourselves in a humble position. We say, I don't deserve your mercy. I don't deserve your grace. I no longer deserve your favor. I don't deserve to be called your son. But I know that you'll treat me mercifully. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. And that's kind of the dynamic of Lent. That's the logic of Lent. To say, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And then with our penance, with our self-denial, with those things that we've given up and our days of fasting and abstinence, we tell our Lord, Lord, I don't deserve rewards. I'm a sinner, Lord. I'm bad. I don't deserve desserts. I don't deserve meat whenever I want it. I don't deserve this form of entertainment with which I reward myself or I've pampered myself. I don't deserve to take it so easy between things every day. And so those Lenten resolutions of denying ourselves some form of entertainment, denying ourselves desserts or sweets, denying ourselves on those fast days of meals and abstinence and perhaps adding a few fast days in Lent, all of those acts are basically this. We're telling our Lord, Lord, I deserve punishment and I don't deserve reward because I'm bad, because I'm a sinner. And in that, we, at the same time, appeal to God's mercy by telling our Lord, Lord, I don't deserve your mercy, but I ask for it anyway. We get it. And this is what happens to the prodigal son. He gets more mercy than he expected. He formulates this act of contrition, and then he goes back to his father. So he got up and went back to his father while he was still a long way off. His father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. What a beautiful detail, Jesus, in this story that you tell. It's as if the father is scanning the horizon, walking outside, hoping against hope that his son will return. And he catches him while he was still a long way off. And he's moved with compassion, mercy. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants quickly, bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Imagine the joy of the prodigal son. Imagine his joyful surprise. He doesn't even get to finish his act of contrition. He just gets to, I no longer deserve to be called your son. In his plan, he was going to add, treat me as one of your hired servants. But his father cuts him off in his mercy and his compassion. And not only is he not demoted and not punished, 
But the father throws this party for him, a celebration of his return, a celebration of his contrition and his asking for mercy, of his re-entry into the father's good grace. Imagine the joy of the prodigal son. He went from that terrible situation of separation from the father, looking death in the eye, starving, to being championed on his return and having this wonderful feast and receiving back all the dignity of his sonship, his robe, his ring, sandals for his feet. What great joy. And this is the joy that we will experience in Easter and that we will experience throughout our life if, right, if we do what the prodigal son did with our sinfulness, with our sins. We have to admit it and we have to go to God for mercy. And we have to be willing to do penance, right? To say, I don't, I don't deserve this mercy. And so I give some sign through my mortification, through my penitential life, especially in the season of Lent. I give some sign of taking on the punishment that I think I deserve for my sinfulness. Another text the church puts before us in this season of Lent to enter into this dynamic of admitting that we're sinners, asking for mercy, and then experiencing God's mercy is from the life of King David. And it takes place after his terrible sin where he commits adultery with Bathsheba and then conspires to have Uriah the Hittite, her husband, killed in war. And then it seems like in the Bible... He just kind of goes on with his life, right? Like nothing to see here and isn't um, particularly sorry or struck by his sinfulness. Perhaps it's so bad that he represses it or forgets it or rationalizes it in some way. And so God has to send Nathan the prophet to David to convict him of his sinfulness. And Nathan comes to David and tells him a story. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup, and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his flock, or herd, to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so Nathan tells this story to David about this man who has this precious possession, his only one, his one little ewe lamb. And with the details here, we really see that um, Nathan is trying to get David to be kind of um, sentimental about the whole thing. Right? It lies in his this man's bosom. The lamb drinks from his cup, eats his morsel. Kind of disgusting to think of the lamb drinking from his own cup, but uh, making the point that this is a very dear uh, family pet or possession. 
And then the rich man, even though he has so much, takes that one thing from the poor man. And it works. Nathan, um, Nathan's story has the effect that he wanted it to have on David, which is self-righteousness, self-righteous anger. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. And isn't this, Lord Jesus, what happens to me so many times in my life? I'm so concerned with the evil that happens outside of me, with the injustice that happens to others and that is perpetrated by others, especially perhaps with the injustice that I suffer at the hands of others. And in being all worked up about what others are doing wrong or the wrongness being done to me, I forget, I'm forgetful, Lord, of my own sinfulness and my own injustice. And Lent is a time in which the Holy Spirit and the church points the finger at us, and we need to point the finger at ourselves and say, you are the man, I am the man, I am the sinner. I've done what's unjust. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have smitten Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have slain him with the sword of the Ammonites. And then Nathan goes on to threaten David with punishment. Because you did this, you're going to be punished by God. And then there's a beautiful transition David, after hearing this this conviction that he's the sinner, being reminded of his sinfulness, being threatened with punishment by God, David immediately, just very simply, admits his sinfulness. And right after admitting his sinfulness, Nathan's words turn from threat to mercy. As soon as David just admits that, yeah, he's guilty, he gets a promise of mercy from Nathan. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. All David has to do to receive a promise of God's mercy is to admit that indeed he has sinned, that indeed, as Nathan puts it, he is the man. I have sinned against the Lord. And this is all we have to do to receive God's mercy, to say, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against the Lord in this specific act, in this attitude that I don't work on because I'm afraid, in this other thing that I've turned a blind eye to, in my self-righteousness, in my proud comparing of myself to others, in my obsession with the evil outside of me, I have sinned against the Lord. I've refused to look at my own sinfulness. And if we don't do that, we won't experience the joy of Easter and the joy 
of true conversion, of true salvation. After this event in which David is convicted of his sin and admits his sinfulness, he composes Psalm 50. In the tradition of the Bible, Psalm 50, the Miserere Psalm, is composed by David as a kind of act of contrition, a long act of contrition, an appeal to God's mercy. Precisely after this event of having committed this grave sin of adultery and murder, and then encountering Nathan who convicts him of it. Have mercy on me, O God, in your goodness, David prays. In the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my offense. Thoroughly wash me from my guilt, and of my sin cleanse me. For I acknowledge my offense, and my sin is before me always. Against you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. I acknowledge my offense, and my sin is before me always. And why, Lord, is our sin before us always? Well, because in a real sense, our sinfulness is us. Right? It's part of us. It's part of our will. It's part of our psychological and spiritual disposition. I'm not just someone who happens to sin. I am a sinner, and therefore... I happen to sin. I don't do what I should do when I should do it. Why? Because I am lazy and I am disordered. And I'm inclined to eat too much and to indulge in too much entertainment. Not just because I happen to eat too much and indulge in too much entertainment every once in a while. No, but because I am intemperate. My soul and my will is disordered, and therefore the bad actions proceed from a vice in me, uh, a real sinfulness in me. I'm not just prone to injustice and critical spirit of others and gossip because I happen to act that way. No, it's because I lack charity in my heart, and I am mean-spirited, and I am self-centered. And so therefore my sin is before me always because It is me. It's not all of me, but it is a part of me. I have a friend who is a priest, and he likes to joke that if he's ever elected a bishop, which he won't be, so don't worry, but he likes to joke that if he's ever appointed a bishop, his Episcopal motto will be, but Lord, by now there will be a stench, right, from the raising of Lazarus, one of Lazarus' sisters, I can't remember which one, but she tells her, Lord, Lord, if we roll away the the stone now from the tomb, there will be a stench in Latin. It's yam fetid, right? By now he stinks because it's been four days and his body's in there decomposing. And so this priest friend of mine says that would be a funny Episcopal motto, right? By now there will be a stench. And this is true, right? Sin is nasty. Sin stinks. And insofar as we sin, our soul is nasty and our soul stinks, right? There's a stench. St. Catherine of Siena had a spiritual gift, if you would call it that. I think it's more of a spiritual curse. But she could smell sin. And it was a very nasty, foul smell. There's a story where she was the guest of some countess or some noble lady. And this lady was in a state of sin, conducting some affair. 
And Catherine, you know, had to run out of the room at this dinner party because she was just sick to her stomach from the from the nasty stench of of the sin of this lady. Saint John Rivianet, who was a very innocent man, if you read his biography, some biographers conjecture that perhaps he never committed even one mortal sin in his life. He was so good from his childhood. At one point, he asks our Lord for the gift of perfect self-knowledge. He says, Lord, I want to see my soul as it really is. I want to see my sinfulness as it really is. And in spite of his innocence, it was a terrible experience. Our Lord let him have that gift of perfect self-knowledge, right? seeing his faults and his sins in their nastiness, right, as they truly are um, beside God's holiness. And St. John Marie Vianney immediately said, Lord, take it away. I don't want this gift anymore. Take it away. Because it was so unbearable to his conscience. And so this is good for us to realize that we are truly sinners and that sin is truly nasty. Because otherwise, you know, I don't know, our confessions can be so transactional, right? I got to say something and it's good to go to confession and I've got these sins, but the sins are kind of like, you know, outside of me. So I'll trade in my sins and then I'll get some words of advice and and I'll say a Hail Mary. So I trade in my sins, I get a Hail Mary back and absolution. But it doesn't go deep, right? Because we don't we don't go with this sense of the prodigal son that we're in a dire situation, right? This is a matter of life and death. And it truly is. A clean heart create for me, O God. David goes on in Psalm 50. And a steadfast spirit renew within me. Cast me not out from your presence. And your Holy Spirit take not from me. Give me back the joy of your salvation. And a willing spirit sustain in me. Give me back the joy of your salvation. Give me back the joy of your salvation. Laetare Sunday. Rejoice and be glad, O Jerusalem. But to have, Lord, the joy of our salvation, we have to come to you humbled, and we have to come to you contrite, and therefore we have to be brave enough and sincere enough to let the Holy Spirit and our own conscience point the finger at us and say, you are the man, right? You are the sinner. You are the unjust one. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Lord, we see this in the parable of the prodigal son. The father's heart is moved to compassion, seeing his son return. The father is so compassionate, he doesn't even let his son finish the act of contrition. He doesn't despise that humble and contrite heart. And maybe when discussing this topic, um, some of us might have some misgivings, right? If we talk about the soul stinking (laughs) and uh, there being a stench because of our sinfulness, and if we talk about that sinfulness being us, and therefore it's a need for us to be saved completely, right? Existentially, not just kind of transactionally for things that we happen to do. Well, there might be a danger, right, to say, well, you know, what about self-love? What about a proper um, self-esteem, a proper self-care? 
and this is important because um, uh, many people do struggle with this, right? That they have, they don't value themselves enough. They have an overly negative uh, view of themselves, and that's not Christian, and it's not, um, it's not healthy. And so I think here we need to be, as Christians, we need to be careful about how we think about this. And I think the real solution is to let our self-regard and let our self-esteem be based on God's love for us and how God thinks about us and the truth of God's vision of us. Because if we do it without God, we get it wrong in different ways. One way of getting it wrong without God is to think that we're unlovable, that our defects make us bad through and through, and we're irredeemable, and we have that, you know, kind of morbid, unchristian self-hatred. And the other way of getting it wrong, if we don't think about God, is to think that, well, we're kind of better than we are, and we overlook our sinfulness, and we exaggerate our virtues. And the wonderful truth of Christianity and of Jesus's love for us is that both are true that yes I am a sinner and and therefore yes I am bad yes I do stink but I'm still lovable right God loves me in my sinfulness God loves me in spite of my <laughs> of my stench because God is love Saint Josemaria would say we're worth all the blood of Christ right God's Forgiveness of our sins reveals to us the depth and the radical nature of his love for us. St. Paul says this very clearly in his letter to the Romans. He writes, While we were yet helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why? One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So St. Paul is basically saying, we're so lovable, we're so loved by God, that even what makes us unlovable and deserving of punishment doesn't stop God from loving us. On the cross, God loves us as much as he possibly could. God the Father giving up his Son for us, God the Son giving his own life for us. And he does it to forgive our sins, right? While while we're still sinners and whether or not we accept that forgiveness, he does it now. Of course, we have to accept that forgiveness for it to be accepted, right? For it to have an impact on our life. But he does it anyway, whether or not we're going to accept it. This is how much he loves us. Whether we recognize our sinfulness and accept his forgiveness or reject it, he still loves us the same. God is love. All he can do is love us, and he loves us, insofar as we're sinners, with mercy. And so it's actually helpful for us to 
come to grips with our sinfulness because as Christians, it reveals to us just how loved we are. And it doesn't take away at all our our deep self-regard because it reveals to us what God thinks of us. And if we don't think about things in that way, well then, we're always wrong in some respect. We either we exaggerate our sinfulness and we think it makes us unlovable, we think we're not worthy of this life or whatever, or we underestimate our sinfulness, underestimate our badness, and overestimate our goodness in an in a attempt to be self-righteous, right? To make ourselves okay with ourselves. And until we admit our sinfulness and and recognize God's love for us in our sinfulness, we're always playing games, right? We're, we're always playing games. We're always like, well, I guess, yeah, I'm bad, but I'm not too bad. Or I'm bad and I'm irredeemable, right? And that's that's false too. Um, I'm bad, but I'm not too bad. Look at these other people, they're worse. Um, plus I have these good qualities over here, so I guess I'm okay. And St. Josemaria has this wonderful image. He says, it's like we want a container for our wretchedness as opposed to a real conversion. Right? We want a container for our wretchedness. And so it's like, well, I can kind of get along with my sinfulness by underplaying it or undervaluing it. And I could be okay with that because at the same time, I have, quote unquote, enough virtue that I'm responsible for to give me self-esteem. And the Christian vision is, no, I'm really bad, but that's okay because God loves me. He forgives me. And I also have a heart that works with God's grace. I can um, be his daughter, be his son, and grow in holiness. We go to Our Lady, Our Lady the refuge of sinners. Give us courage, Mary, our mother. It's hard to live this way. It's hard to throw off calculation. The calculation of, well, I don't want to be too bad and hopefully I'm good enough. Is this too bad or is this good enough? It always kind of calculating. To throw that off to say, no, I'm really bad in my badness and I go to God for forgiveness. And then on the good side, I want to throw myself into goodness with a kind of reckless abandon because I know that God loves me and I know he's calling me to holiness. And that's hard. It's hard because, you know, it's it's hard to admit our sinfulness. It's hard to see uh, how we're truly bad. And it's hard to be brave enough to throw ourselves unreservedly into grace, into the level of goodness that God wants to bring us to. And so when we're afraid, we go to our mother and we hold her hand and she helps us walk towards this God who is mercy and who is love. Our Lady, our Mother, help us to experience once again the joy of our salvation. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, My guardian angel, intercede for me.